Welcome to another episode of our Policy, Guns and Money Bigger Picture series with me, Gabriel Zito, a special presenter. This week, Peter Jennings speaks with Dr. David Kilcullen on the global implications of the continued conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the state of Afghanistan since the withdrawal of international forces, and the future of Australia's defence capability versus meeting its current short-term demands. So, David, thank you for joining us. It's great to see you here in Canberra. Let's start with the Ukraine. What's your assessment of the current military situation? Is Russia pausing to regroup or have they been fought to a standstill? What happens from here? Yeah, a bit of both, right? Firstly, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be back. So, you know, they had Plan A, which was essentially to seize downtown Kyiv by breakfast on the first day of the war, and that failed almost immediately. They went to Plan B of encircling major cities that failed by week three. So sort of lack of agile planning, the fact that they had these four widely dispersed axes of advance that was intended to separate the Ukrainian defenders but actually separated them to the point where they didn't manage to mass effectively on any one approach has meant that basically they, they're stalled. So I think they're at a fork in the road and if we look at what they're doing now, they are building their artillery on a couple of major axes and it looks like, to me anyway, it looks like they're going to escalate the use of their firepower to compensate for lack of manpower. We often think about the Russians being dramatically bigger than the Ukrainians, but in terms of ground forces, Russia only has about 280,000 ground forces total, of whom they've already got 75% more or less, about 210,000 mm. committed. So they're almost out of people, but they still have a vast amount of firepower in reserve. So that's what I think happens next. You know, yeah. Is this an old-fashioned intelligence failure that the intelligence services got the Ukrainian people wrong and gave the wrong advice to Putin? Possibly. I think partly it was that it was planned by a very narrow circle around Putin and Putin's people are intelligence service people. There's also a stunning failure of the Fifth Service, which is the foreign intelligence part of the FSB, Putin's old agency. And there's credible rumours that the head of that service has been detained in Moscow. Also, Rusi published a fascinating assessment of what the Russians thought they were getting into a couple of weeks ago. And, it, you know, having done Iraq, it reminds me that, you know, we're not the only ones that can screw this up because they looked into the true fact that Zelensky had a approval rating of 27% in January and 40% of Ukrainians said they wouldn't fight to defend Ukraine and they thought, oh, these guys will be a pushover. It turns out when you roll the tanks, everything changes, right? And people are like, hang on, you know, I am going to fight. And I think they miscalculated the degree of determination of the Ukrainian people in particular. Yeah. yeah. I think there's lessons also for us here around the challenges of modernising a force, right? Because there's been a huge amount of stuff written about how good the Russian military's become in the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. It turns out that, you know, the large number of folk in Ukraine appear to be poorly trained conscripts, not getting food, not having access to mm -hmm. fuel, 1980s tanks with weird sort of chicken coop stuff welded to the top because that's somehow going to protect them against javelin missiles. I mean, this is in many respects still the old failing Russian army that the Soviets left them 30 years ago. To some extent, yeah. I mean, I think it's a two-speed military. Mm -hmm. They have very good special operators. They do have some excellent 
armoured vehicles. They don't have enough of them for what they're trying to do. And I don't think they expected they would get into this kind of mass drawn-out engagement. They, they wanted to, you know, bounce it with VDV, which is their elite airborne forces, on the first day. They accidentally released their press release for day three where they were going to declare victory. And you can see that their intent was to do sort of a Czechoslovakia 68 yeah. kind of thing, right? And once they got defeated on the air, airfield, the Hostomel airfield outside of Kiev, they found themselves rapidly having to readjust and committing a lot of forces that clearly were not ready for the fight. I also think it's a massive injection of reality into the debate about anti-armour, tanks, urban warfare, firepower. And, you know, there's been a lot of claims made and assessments issued over the past 20 years about the, you know, the Russian military. And I think, you know, it's only when the rubber hits the road in a, in a case like this that you actually get to determine who's been Swimming with no no cosy on. Yeah. yeah, what's what's your take on the sort of puzzling Russian air power story? Because I guess all of us expected that was going to be the first it, thing. It is the puzzling. Ukrainian air force. Yeah, what's happened there? Well, it's very puzzling, and particularly because they've had six and a half years of operations in Syria to learn about the importance of suppressing enemy air defences. I mean, obviously, the enemy they've been dealing with in Syria doesn't have an air force, with the exception of some drones, but, you know, offensive and defensive counter-air and suppression of enemy air defences. I mean, we would never in a million years as a Western force operate the way they've been operating without having air superiority. And they've lost, uh, almost lost count, something like 1,600 armoured vehicles, maybe 7,000 troops now, through just continuing to operate as if they had suppressed the Ukrainian air force when they actually haven't. I mean, it's just crazy. So there's, you know, there's a question. VVS, the, the Aerospace Force, my guess, and I, I share this with a couple of other analysts, is that they may not have been fully included in the planning for the operation. They may have actually been caught by surprise a little bit because of the failure of that initial coup de man-style operation on day one. And when they finally found themselves in a major campaign, they hadn't, destroyed, they hadn't even bothered to crater the runways let alone destroy the Ukrainian Air Force on the ground. That suggests to me that they thought it would all be over in a day or two and they didn't want to damage that stuff because they thought they were going to be inheriting it. So um, no plan for air power domination, effectively. Yeah. Well, I think they planned for a rapid political collapse yep. and the replacement of the Zelensky government with a regime favourable to Russia. That's also why I think they miscalculated the issue of economic sanctions, right? They probably realised that economic sanctions would be particularly damaging but they didn't think they'd have time to bite right they thought yeah it'll all be over in three days yeah. and now they find themselves you know stuck so let's talk about the ukrainian situation what's their strategic and sort of operational options available to them at this particular point in yeah the well let's start with the obvious point right that the ukrainians are in a war of national survival whereas the russians are in a war of choice so there is an asymmetry there of national will and i think we're really seeing that on the battlefield now, but there comes a point where sheer material weight is going to start to weigh on the Ukrainians. And it's also worth pointing out that the version of the war that we are seeing is by definition slanted because it's coming heavily through a Ukrainian lens. And I think we have to assume the Ukrainians are taking more losses than we are necessarily seeing. That may be why Volodymyr Zelensky is so keen to negotiate. In the last two or three days, he's mentioned that a number of times. But clearly Putin's not ready to negotiate yet. 
and I, that's why I think he's about to escalate in terms of firepower. The other players that I think are really important here are the Chinese, who went out on a big limb a month ago by having a very public love-in with Putin just before the, the Olympic Games, and now find themselves caught. And as you know, there's a very active debate going on both in the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA about how to respond to this. You know, prominent think tankers like Hu Wei putting out that paper saying we should be backing away from the Russians, others saying, no, we should, we should double down. Xi Jinping keeping his powder dry, right? What worries me is if the West starts to push Ukraine into making concessions without waiting to see where the Chinese come down, right? Because I think China's got a very important decision to make and I think we should let them make that decision, right? And they may decide, you know what, we should encourage the Russians to back off or we should try and mediate we should let that play out before we start encouraging anything of a climb down on the part of the Ukrainians. Yeah. And the other point that I'd make, and it's kind of obvious, is I don't know how many Ukrainians you've ever worked with, but you know these guys fought the Soviets for 20 years with zero chance of victory between 1945 and the mid-1960s and didn't give up. So we're not in the realm of purely rational calculation. This is a, a national survival question and i think we're not going to see you know people just roll over under some kind of deal with the russians and that puts constraints on what volodymyr Zelensky can do right he can only go to the degree that his own people will accept as well in fact i think every every bomb is sort of hardening that sense of ukrainian resistance it's not Very much it's so. not breaking their will it's strengthening it yeah. and, and they're not going to back off what's your take david on NATO and the Americans in this situation. I mean, yes, they're providing arms to the Ukrainians, but, you know, we've had a clear no to the no-fly zone. Every time President Biden talks about it, he's sort of mumbling about World War Three. I mean, is, is there more that NATO and the US could do to be helping the Ukrainians here? Yeah, there is. And, I, you know, look, a no-fly zone, it, by definition, is a combat operation, and it would involve a hot shooting war with Russia. I mean, it would be NATO aircraft shooting down Russian aircraft and engaging with ground-based air defences in Ukraine and possibly in Russia, right? And you would expect the Russians to widen the theatre to include the airstrips from which those aircraft are flying. So, you know, you're already in a war at that point with Russia. I agree it's probably not desirable, you know, to do that, and we should avoid it if at all possible. But I, I would also say it's unwise to preemptively take off the table any kind of combat action on the part of NATO. And I think the Biden administration for months has been, you know, every time they open their mouth, some Biden administration spokesperson is saying, don't worry, we have no intention of fighting the, the Russians, we're not going to engage in a, you know... Well, by so clearly taking that off the table, I think that's contributed to, you know, a failure of deterrence, which made the Russians believe they could get away with it. And so, and you know, they might be right. So I, I think that we should, maybe it's a bit late, but it would be good to see a bit of strategic ambiguity coming back into the discussion and, you know, maybe shifting in response to what I think is going to be this escalation in the next week to say, look, we might have said that before you started wiping out shopping malls and, you know, launching potentially chemical weapons, but now all bets are off. To be honest, I'm not sure President Biden has that in him to do that. And I think that's a problem for NATO. This may not be a popular point of view in the White House, but I would just flag that 
the Russians here, I think, might be operating to send a message to NATO through Ukraine, not just attacking Ukraine. And the clear targets are the Baltic states, the Scandinavians, Finland, Sweden, Poland. And if we don't set the Russians back on their heels with this campaign, then we may very well find them doing it again, except that we are in an even weaker set of circumstances. Yes. You know, so I think continuing to support the Ukrainians and indeed escalating what we do is, is probably the way to be thinking about it. So I think the Russians are much better at signalling their intent and sort of confusing the, their intent than the Americans in this case. The, the Biden administration seems to be talking about it almost like we're talking about it here. It's a seminar. It's not actually trying to put a yeah. position to complicate how the Russians think about it. Yeah. And, you know, the use or potential use is not entirely clear of the so-called dagger hypersonic weapon I thought was an interesting example of Russian signalling because here you have, if it was used, a weapon that is dual use, it can be both conventional and nuclear, it's clearly not necessary for the sort of target that they were attacking it with, which was a fairly undefended ammunition dump, but it is saying to the West, look at the capabilities mm -hmm. that we can now bring into the field. Yeah, so They did a like, similar thing right at the beginning of the war when they moved the Topol-M batteries, so their intercontinental ballistic missile ground-based launches, through major city in, in Russia and said, we're redeploying the Topol-Ms and right. we're going to a... Well, they're intercontinental, mate. You don't have to move them around in order to launch them. You know, There was clearly a signalling activity. Yes. I think the Russians are trying to engage in brinkmanship and we keep gingerly stepping back from the brink. Right. So we're not actually putting any pressure back on them. And I think that their sort of fancy footwork may fall flat. I would just say I think that American policymakers in particular, particularly Democratic Party, because it was their party that was involved in this, are haunted by the Korean War, which seems so long ago that it's hard to remember. But you recall that the State Department kind of accidentally left South Korea yes. off the list of places they thought they would right. that they were going to defend and, they, and made a statement to that effect. And Stalin read the list very closely and said, ah, oh, they left off South Korea. Right, you know. Kim Il-sung, let's go. And I think that the Truman administration was scarred and all successive democratic policymakers have been scarred by failure to clearly state the red line. But I think they've taken it to the other extreme now. So, so I'm interested in your take on Poland here. Poland is inside the red line. It's now mm -hmm. a NATO country. Mm -hmm. Poland wanted to provide SU-29s, I think they were, to the Ukrainians. Poland continues to be well ahead of the United States, it would seem, in terms of its willingness to take the fight to the Russians. How do you kind of interpret their particular view and what does that mean for, you know, overall sort of NATO approach? Well, Poland is a frontline state and when they offered the MiG-29s, I think they were trying to change the, you know, window of acceptable discourse within NATO and the US and I, they may have achieved that without even providing the aircraft. But, you know, we have now provided somewhere close to 20,000 anti-armour and air defence weapons to the Ukrainians. And what are we talking, 7,000 Russians have been killed? So if the Russians wanted to choose to regard NATO as a co-belligerent, they could do that now, right? The addition of MiG-29s isn't going to change that. There are some practical reasons why it might have been difficult to provide that support, but I do think there are things we could do short of ground combat that would really set the Russians back and sort of change their calculus. And that's one. Another would have been advisors or trainers on the ground. 
A third might be some kind of peacekeeping force or humanitarian engagement. The polls have talked a lot about that. We forget about it now because so much has happened since. But back in January, the Poles and the Belarusians were involved in a major standoff over the border where Belarus was pushing Middle Eastern immigrants onto the Polish border. I suspect that was a probe to test the degree of resilience that the Poles were going to show. And I think the Poles have very much stepped up, not only to the military side of it, but also to the humanitarian side and accepting a huge number of Ukrainian refugees. So I think... That's where their policy and the policy of a lot of the other smaller NATO players is to try to get the Americans to step up a bit more to the the need to be a bit more hard-edged on some of the stuff that the Russians are doing. It's amazing, isn't it, David, if you stay in this business long enough, having the Europeans urging the Americans to be you know, more um, on the front foot about uh, NATO is a remarkable... Vladimir Putin's moment. done more for NATO unity and defence spending in a couple of weeks in, than indeed. three successive US presidents. Now, we've spoken too much more about uh, Ukraine than I wanted, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Let, let's just quickly go to a couple of other points. Mm-hmm. You, you spoke at an ASPE event on the future of Western special operations after Afghanistan. What are your sort of key takeaways from that particular topic? Yeah, look, I I think we need to be thinking very hard about where so command and where the special operations capability sits within the national defence repertoire. As I said, I think we need smaller teams that can operate for longer duration with a broader mix of skills across a wider range of mission sets. And also, I mentioned the, the notion of humility, right? I work quite a lot with British Special Forces and they have a saying, you are not special, the mission is. And I think it's really important that we recapture some of that humility now that we find ourselves in potentially a grey zone contest with a superior adversary. So I think we need to be you know, thinking about how does grey zone look when we are the grey zone actor, right? Sort of getting out of our defensive crouch that we adopted during the war on terror where we're sort of like a soccer goalie defending against all kinds of threats. We need to be the threat now and that's a different mindset. And in fact the historical environment that it most resembles I think is is the middle of World War II and I think we need to be thinking about that. I would also just flag another point that came up that counterterrorism hasn't gone away, mm-hmm. right? In fact we've got a major problem now developing in Afghanistan and also in Iraq on the Iraq-Syria border and that requirement is going to be there. It's going to be an enduring obligation of the tags the domestic tactical assault groups and that needs to be factored into everything else that we're thinking about doing with with the special operations capability i wanted to ask you about afghanistan because i think we're already seeing some of the regrettable outcomes of that precipitate withdrawal that happened for example we do not have the type of intelligence coverage that we would want to have to understand how terrorist groups are operating and forming in the country. I mean, what, what's your take on, you know, the next sort of few years of how Afghanistan's situation is going to play out? And, and I'm interested also in your view of China's uh, role in that uh, story. I think China is the big winner here. China, along with Pakistan and to a lesser extent Iran, now essentially runs the table in South and Southwest Asia. The Chinese did a deal with Iran, as you know, 25-year defence and industrial and economic cooperation deal. They are now able to import oil directly from Iran overland because they have the control of that terrain. I mean, it's difficult, but it's easier than shipping it under the guns of the US Navy through the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea. So that dramatically changes the 
strategic correlation of forces for China. It does also stick them with a bit of a problem, right, in terms of um, security. You are absolutely right. Our level of visibility as institutionally has dropped off dramatically. Some of us are still in close contact with people on the ground in Afghanistan, but it's not a, an official position. For those that aren't aware, the National Resistance Front is very alive and well. They're fighting the Taliban, recapturing terrain. They're already in the middle of launching a spring offensive, doing to the Taliban what the Taliban did to us for 20 years. You've got Taliban showing some signs of fracturing. There was a major rebellion against the Taliban up in the northwest of the country about a month ago. And now, I think importantly from a CT standpoint, you have two emerging centres of ISIS activity in the east and the northwest. And I think that the, there's a possibility that ISIS benefits from Taliban weakness here and that we actually see a very serious threat emerge from Afghanistan pretty soon. And again, I, I can't talk about Afghanistan without just mentioning we have tens of thousands of Afghan allies that we abandon on the ground to their own resources who are being hunted and killed by the Taliban right now, as are their families. It's a moral stain on all of us to, that we allowed that to happen. But equally importantly... That is the people that we, that's the group of people we need to be working with if we ever want to gain a grip again of the counterterrorism problem set. Yes. You know? Well, you and I both know that that withdrawal was was a disaster on many levels, from the human level right through to the big strategic judgments. And I think what it shows is that yes, a country like the United States or, or ISAF can withdraw their forces, but you can't withdraw your interests from mm. the Middle East, they are going to continue to be engaged and I suspect that it will continue to find ways to draw us back. Mm. David, I want to finish just quickly on Australia and defence. You're, you're obviously an Australian living in the United States but able to come back here, COVID allowing on a mm. pretty regular basis. Mm -hmm. You'd be aware that we've got you know a big defence debate shaping around really a mismatch between the future investment of capability in the Defence Force frigates and submarines 15 to 20 years down the track versus a much more difficult short-term strategic situation. As, as you look at it from you know your vantage point of the US, what, what's your sort of take on how this debate is playing out in Australia and you know, any thoughts about how to resolve it? Yeah, well, so, I mean, looking at Australia from the US, I noticed that there's a high degree of partisan politics creeping into the defence debate and people are getting upset about that and I think it is unfortunate but you know it's nothing compared to what happens in the States right I mean Australia still is a much more adult discussion going on and a, a much higher degree of let's say a common set of shared facts right that people might disagree about how to respond to those facts but people aren't in their own alternative universes in the way they are often in in the States so it's not that bad but I think we do need to have an adult conversation about the short-term requirement, about the need to cover a capability gap for the next, call it 20 years. But I also think there are two sort of prior choices we need to be thinking about at an even greater level. One is what I think is the most important fork in the road that we're facing, which is do we want to double down on the alliance with the United States and therefore focus the ADF on expeditionary operations in support of a coalition? Or... Do we want to go in a sort of national self-reliance direction where we say, look, China's rising, the US is declining, you can like that or hate it, but it's, it's a fact, and we should be 
orienting in a much more self-reliant uh, national resilience kind of mode. Now, I'm not saying either of those is correct, but I'm saying that's the big choice we need to really have at the grand strategic level. Yes. And then there's another one which sits below that, which is all around innovation policy, critical technologies, industry policy, how we want the economy to be structured, you know, what are we going to do about the energy transition, climate change, all that stuff, which feeds the defence strategy that we can adopt. And it's a long time. I guess it was Peter Varghese who did the last national strategy uh, document. And it's, we're well overdue for a rethink on some of that stuff, I think. The debate on double down on the alliance versus uh, sort of a nationally coherent policy is one that really has been you know, decisively won, at, at least for the moment, on more alliance, right? That is, that is what... Yeah. Clearly the Morrison government is doubling down on the alliance and AUKUS is the, is the policy expression of that. Yes. But of course, you know, it's 20 years between now when we'll get the, the capability. A lot will change by definition in that time. And I don't think that a national self-reliance policy is incompatible with a very strong alliance relationship with the United States, nor is it incompatible with having high-end weapon systems like subs that come from the United States. I think the issue is that we need to understand that we'll be a better ally to the United States to the extent that we're able to do more ourselves. And I think that gives options to government in a, frankly, a rapidly changing environment. David, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, come back to Australia more often. Yeah, and thanks. when you do, please come to us. Yep. Thank thanks, you. Peter. Great to, great to see you guys again. That's all we have time for in this episode. Our guests this week were Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and Dr David Kilcullen, Professor of International and Political Studies at UNSW Canberra. You can subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes. Until next time, this is Policy Guns and Money. Thanks for listening. <laughs>